certainly, you know, yeah. we want people to know how to say your name. And I want to get clear on how to pronounce your pronouns of choice because I've only ever seen them in writing. And I'm not entirely sure that what I hear in my head is how they should be pronounced. So I'm going to get clear on that too. So we're recording. Would you reintroduce yourself so that folks know how to say your name? Hi, I'm Amishé It's Alone. And my pronouns, since I was asked, are they, their, them. Ah. I've evolved on that over time, but the whole gig is evolving. Yeah. Right. Mm. Rapidly under our feet. So cool. I think the last time I saw you, and this was a while ago, but I think you were using she and sheer with an X. Does that ring a bell that you were doing that at some point? Or is, did I have some kind of wild fantasy? Crazy. (laughs) I remember vividly this, this, uh, Facebook post and I was fascinated by it. And what's super interesting about it is I didn't hear anything about those pronouns for a long time. And then I've started to see them in fiction just recently. I read this book by Rebecca Roanhorse called The Black Sun, which is a like epic pre-Columbian, super fantastic fantasy novel. Um, And there's a third gender in one of the cultures there there's a third gender in a couple of the cultures but in one of them they use the xi xir pronoun and i was like how crazy i've only ever seen this one other time but apparently it was a dream so (laughs) it might not have been because for it might have been a little bit of a dream and a little bit of reality Mm. because i think for about 12 days Mm. i experimented with something else and then i was like that's never going to fly in the sense of people being able to remember that and work with it. You know what I mean? Yeah, totally. And also, I can't remember it and work with it. Because really what was happening is that like I'm a, a transgender person, but I'm also an intersex person. I have intersex biology which is with both male and female biology in me. And I'm like really an intersex person because there's all kinds of variations, but I'm like literally half and half, literally, and have been this way my whole life, obviously. And so there's so much stigmata about that, but now starting to be relieved. And a lot of my life, people trying to like make intersex people out to be kind of like schizophrenic and, or like multiple personality disorder, all kinds of misdiagnoses right? Because mm-hmm. there's no societal expression for this right. in, in our mainstream culture. Indigenous cultures have lots of this. So I really resisted the plural pronoun for a long time for myself because I had had that put on me for so long. You know what I mean? But yeah. now like the younger generations are really taken off with this and it's like the new way of the land and there's all kinds of other variations, but it just is being relieved. You know, And I'm like, sometimes you just have to choose the path that's actually opening in front of us. Yeah, mm-hmm. That makes a lot of you sense. I mean? And I want to support, especially our youngers in this way. So it feels like that just came to that with me, but it's all, you know, we're all evolving. Yeah. Like we've been in this conversation. Yeah. So I think you weren't entirely in fantasy land. And, uh, well, that's good to know. Very narrow window. <laughs> it, man, it landed quite deeply, apparently, even if it was only for a brief moment, it really has, it's settled with me. It should um, be like my alter ego. One of many, right? <laughs> totally. Totally. Uh, the world of social media. So tell us, if you would, a little bit about what you're up to these days in any way you feel 
to answer that question? Well, you know, I just feel like many people in pandemic land, right, has made an opportunity to turn life upside down and inside out, right? And so that's kind of what I'm up to. And now I just want to help other people do that. Mm. (laughs) But in a little more concrete terms, what it has helped me do is focalize this for reference. I'm 49. I say in a half years old, I feel like a little kid when you do like little (laughs) micro years because 50 is a really big life marker and it's coming up this summer. So I'm like back into my little kid land of counting down. I feel you. I'm 48. So like we're, I'm, I'm feeling you. (laughs) Right. I'll tell you how it is. Yeah. And so, and I feel, and I feel like I've done an entire professional career already in my profession. I'm a rabbi by profession, but not in the way most people would think, but I am. And I've got 20 years in the field and I was training since I was four to do this. I come from really old family lines and old lineages. I also am regular, normal American type person. I'm sort of like a mutt in this way. And it's like awesome. And so I feel like I have lived an entire lifetime in my career and also energy medicine and practical spirituality and spiritual healing. All of that started when I was four. And so, you know, that's a long career. That's 45 years in the field. I started helping lead ceremony. I mean, I wasn't leading, but I was helping the ones that were leading and holding space from four years old. Right. And especially six and seven. And and then professionally over 20 years in the field. And so now I feel like, you know how some people, they go into the military when they're young and they, and they serve like 20 years or 25 years and they come and then they retire from the service, mm-hmm. but they're still pretty young, yeah. right? In yeah. their forties. And they have a whole new path that they can open in front of them. So the pandemic year for me has felt like that. Mm. Like it's allowed me to close out, like a whole career in my life and in my profession and as opening up a new path. And so I'm still going to be in my career, but now I get to do whatever I want. Mm. Because wow. I feel like I've just answered all the things that you're supposed to answer and supposed to things that you're supposed to do. So I'm going to do rabbinic work still, but I want to really move this into the field of practical spirituality as much as possible. Right. And, and free that up of religious doctrine mm. and all this thing. And my big push really is um, in forgiveness work Mm -hmm. and reconciliation. And there's a whole thing in the Jewish tradition that that's about. I mean, I could just talk about that forever. So I'm going to not do that, (laughs) but I could. And because some of one of our oldest prayer and spiritual healing modalities in the Jewish and Hebraic traditions, going all the way back to the times of when we think Moses lived, right, in a documentable way, not just in theory, is this particular litany. And so it's just so beautiful. It's really the basis for the entire spiritual healing tradition and the Jewish tradition. And so it's time to like export that. Mm. And because it's universal and it's calling these universal forces of forgiveness, right, and these universal vibrational forces and many world traditions, they, there's 13 of them. Many world traditions refer to these called the 13 tones. Ancient Tibetan tradition has this. The Chinese tradition has this. The Mayan tradition has this. Many Amazonian traditions, the Lakota. Many traditions refer to this because it's like so ancient. Mm. 
And so I just really want to bring this forward. And one of the things I love about forgiveness work is that it, um, I mean, there's so many ways to approach it, but for me, it's just so real. You know, it's not like I wrote about this once. It's not like all butterflies and fairy bells and, and you can only feel good. And I'm like, sometimes the deepest forgiveness work, I'm like, rah, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's like hard work, but then we stay with it. And it's like, what do we bring to that platform and how do we hold that space? And you know what I mean? To let light really shine where it wants to shine and get into that. And then I think that that's where human hearts tend to open because mm. right? then hearts feel like, okay, I'm being listened to. I'm being respected. My anger has a place. It's not the end point, but it's part of the process and that's allowable, mm -hmm. right? We call that in activist circles now tone policing. Like we're not tone policing mm. people. Mm. We have to act respectfully in the space, but otherwise, right? So this is my really big push. And then in that, basically, every I have lots of little things that I want to do. But for me, the, these are, I call this 13 attributes because that's the prayer from Jewishly. But the mm -hmm. 13 attributes, forgiveness work, it can hold anything. Like there is literally nothing and no circumstance that can this cannot be applied to and cannot hold space for. Every single thing is like a methodology that can be brought to any situation in any circumstance. So all of my other activist work that I want to do, a lot of it gender related right now is, you know, comes now has a vehicle to come into. So that's kind of what I'm up to. Yeah. I mean, but I'm like reinventing myself right. as we is what I was the beginning of that. Yeah. You know what I mean? Just letting that happen. And one of my great mentors, rabbinic mentors said, he said, um, his name is Gershon Winkler, Rabbi Gershon Winkler. And he said, it's like casting bread out on the water and then see where it goes. Mm. You know what I mean, so mm -hmm. I feel like that's what the universe is doing in me right now. Mm. Casting me out on the water. So given that you're in this, this state of casting your own bread, right? The bread of yourself out on the water. And in some respects, who can know where that bread's going to go and what, what, where the current's going to take it. Do you, as you feel into this 13 attribute work and, and the way that it sounds, at least if I'm hearing you right and understanding you well, that it's, it's sort of a, you said container, I'm, I'm perceiving a vehicle, right? That, you know, so a, a slightly different container, but the vehicle for me is because it feels like it's moving, right? So we have the the current that's taking this and it's entering into this new space. Do you have a sense for what that vehicle looks like? What the, the current you're riding on is like? Well, I have a dream. Let's hear it. You know? Yeah. No, I mean, I've had this vision for a long time and I really, I mean, almost my entire professional career, actually. So at least 17 of my 20 years in the profession. And it's like, I just want everyone to have access. Mm. You know what I mean? And especially because, I mean, I'm not particularly anti-religious, although it's about to sound that way, maybe, because I tend to be more spiritual. But it's like, I think that religion, at least in the last age of humanity has really 
caused a lot of constriction in people feeling like they have permission to access spirituality or access, you know, from their own place or have their own personal relationship that's not dictated by some other authority telling them how to do that. And so then it's hard now to bring the language of spirituality and the and the methodologies and the tools that we have uh, for people to use. And so I want to like present this in a way that's accessible to everybody everywhere. And the people who are working in more overtly spiritual places, it's just going to resonate quicker because mm-hmm. there's a platform, you know what I mean? Yeah. But mm-hmm. I just feel like everybody can feel these and I want people to feel liberated to do so. Mm-hmm. right? And I think that one of the reasons that people have a hard time accessing compassion, I mean, that's such a, such a natural human thing to do, but there's so many obstructions. It's because they don't feel they have permission to do that. Mm. Like if I do this, I have to deny that. Mm. Right? Mm. And then you can't get to forgiveness right. if you can't get, you can't hold it, listen to other people and, you know, all of that kind of stuff and really put our own wounds on the table along with the ones of the other ones. Right. right. And you know, like I've been in activist circles for a long time. Actually, I grew up in activist circles and, and I don't know, sometimes I post about this on Facebook. I literally was born in the middle of the civil rights movement and my mother was a civil rights attorney. I have obviously a Jewish background, so she was a Jewish woman civil rights attorney in the deep south in the 1970s. And she got there because she went down on the freedom rides in the 1960s at a time when Jews in the deep South were not considered white mm. or black, but they in color, but they weren't white either. Some weird hybrid in between. Right. And my father also was born in the deep South and joined them and they were part of that movement. And our house was a safe house from when I was born, right. For the clients that she served. And so people would be protecting the house with guns. I mean, it was like a really serious environment actually to grow up in. And I was born into that environment. So I've seen a lot of activist work in my whole life and we lots of involvement with the American Indian movement, my parents, when I was very young. And then I have carried that on and have those connections. And then when I was in college and in graduate school in Washington, DC, that was in like 1989, 90, 91, like in there. Right. And so we had all these so I think every week there was a march of like a hundred thousand or more people protesting something, especially the war in El Salvador was very big on a horizon then. And I was like all the other college student activists and stuff. But then I started to really, my heart was like, huh, because the cause is correct, but, but the vibration is all anger Mm -hmm. and vengeance, Mm -hmm. you know, but the cause is correct. And what people are trying to stand up for is correct. This was just my observation. Mm -hmm. I'm not speaking in absolute truth. Mm-hmm. Right. But I was a young person then. And to this day, I still feel this mm-hmm. right in a lot of activist circles. And so then from the place of these 13 attributes mm-hmm. of forgiveness, I have lots of compassion for why that is. Right. I'm so much compassion for why that is. But I also don't feel that true healing and transformation is going to come from a place of anger and vengeance. I think that that needs to be able to be voiced. Mm-hmm. Right. But that that as an end goal, that's not going to get us where we're going. Mm-hmm. 
So I've sort of been plotting behind the scenes during my entire professional career to find a way to present a methodology that itself is not necessarily the end point, but that can be like plugged in. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? It's sort of like applied and like, and brought in as a way for people to sort of grow the working resources on the ground. Mm. I'm saying, yeah, because mm -hmm. we we have to transform the situation, or we're just going to be yelling our pain at each other forever. Right, right. Have you? Are there uh, specific instances that come to mind of circles or ceremonies where you've had the opportunity to bring this methodology that you feel like are like a rich and clear representation of, of how those things come together that you could share? Well, sort of. Yeah. <laughs> cool. You know, because it's like a lot of us, we just try to work where we, where we are. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. you know what I mean, and it might seem like a little place, but then it like radiates out. And then the ones that are in that space radiated out to the ones and so sometimes we're not pointing at such huge examples and we're just really trying to radiate in our circles. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And for me, I have the blessing of being this, like I said, this kind of like American mutt of all of these lineages and traditions. But one of those is this really ancient Jewish lineage that I carry and I'm ordained in my family. This goes all the way back to the times of King David. So I'm, I'm still a relatively young person, and I don't think I'm actually that wise of a human being, to be honest. My, I have mentors of my own that I really look up to and count on. But on a technical level, I'm a lineage holder. Mm -hmm. And so it gives me a voice, mm -hmm. you know, like gives me a platform to speak from that people listen to. And so I've trained rabbinic students and trained activists and held circles for people and written a lot of things. And, and you often won't even find my name anywhere. But my students have built organizations that are like, you know, million dollar grant organizations and are growing whole movements. And so we just start like try to work where we're at and it radiates out. But I do have a working example on the ground. That's kind of my favorite example. Awesome. And that was at. Uh, Standing Rock, you know, up in North Dakota, for people maybe who aren't familiar, you probably are familiar with this, but people who are listening, maybe not familiar. It was now like about four years ago, a little over four years ago, and where Native folk were protesting the installation of the Dakota Access Pipeline through their tribal lands and threatening the waters there in a real way. And I think that that's actually not going to happen now. It's taken a long time and many appeals. But I think that was a successful process. And so they had prayer camps, but that became the protest camps, mm. right? But they were supposed to be prayer camps. But so it's like all this gets mixed up yeah. and thousands of people came from all over. It was really very beautiful, but lots of law enforcement resistance to this. So it was a really volatile process. And I had the blessing to go as a rabbinic emissary for like mainstream rabbinics representing. So at that time when I went, it was like 350 rabbis that signed on, but I think it topped 500 by the time we were done. Mm, that's awesome. And it, it was really awesome actually. And many other faith-based groups did the same thing. And then also, so I was able to deliver that. And then I also represented my own lineage in the indigenous Hebraic line right in this spiritual healing line of King David. So, 
any rate, I wound up on the ground and somehow, I mean, I know how it happened, but it's like hard to explain, right? How, how things just work out in my language I say hard to explain how the divine works things out. Right. But mm. any rate, I wound up in the inner council of the spiritual leadership uh, of the Lakota Sioux of that movement being led by at that time, chief Leonard Crow dog, this incredible elder um, Crow dog was one of the first people to openly hold the Sundance in the 1970s in this country when it was still illegal. A lot of people don't understand Native American religion was outlawed and was illegal and people could be jailed for this until the mid 1970s actually. So I think as early as 1965, right. Crow dog was holding the Sundance openly and was doing these things. Mm. One of the leaders of the American Indian movement, a person who's also a very complex human being that had to, didn't come as a realized He's not a saint now, but he's closer, right? It wasn't in a, so in light, had to grow through everything. I like people like that because I have to do that. He I wound up in his inner circle, in his inner council. And um, it's funny because he found me and he was like, oh, you're the Hebrew one. <laughs> said, not the Jew, you're the Hebrew one. And he said, we were in... We were in ceremony this morning and we all saw at the same time this vision of like this tree of life and all these symbols. And we didn't know what they were, but we were pretty sure they were Hebrew, but like really old Hebrew. And then we heard this voice that the Hebrew one was coming. It's like, you're the Hebrew one. <laughs> That's so cool. It's so cool. Like I could not orchestrate that. And so I wound up in his council and we were talking about this and he was saying that he didn't like the way that the prayer camp had become a protest camp uh, and that he, and that he honored all the hearts that had come because people came with lots of good heart, but then like got caught up in the moment because people were being shot. So it's like for real, I wouldn't say it was a war, but for sure it was a battle, an actual battle, you know, and really horrible things were happening. And, So, you know, it's easy for people to turn that way. And he was saying, but really, this is a prayer movement. And many of the indigenous leaders were calling for that same thing. And and so then there was a call. We had a a clergy call and like 5,000 clergy. I was already there. Like 5,000 clergy came. And also a veterans call. And like 5,000 veterans came. The vets came to protect the native folk. Mm -hmm. And the clergy came to protect the vets. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. Like this. It was really awesome. But all this our uh, protest energy and and Kodog was we were talking about this and we had this consensus so I didn't really affect the change I just sort of like affirmed my line of thought and then the native folk affect the change right mm-hmm. I was learning and he was like this is one moment but that it's gonna radiate outward for years to come beyond this tribe beyond this land to peoples all across the earth this moment he said it's just going to radiate and radiate and radiate outward. And he says this moment needs to be about firming the central column of prayer mm. like this. And so really in his own language, he was saying, you know, what I'm trying to affect now right, is to help people find whether we, whether people are calling it a prayer space or if they're in secular language, you know, whatever Sometimes we fly in under the radar mm-hmm. a little bit, right? going to scare people off. But, you know, it's like to firm a space where all that stuff can be held, right? But in prayer, and Native folk did it 
And I mean, there's all that other stuff was still happening and anger and agitation, but really they came back and really helped firm their central column of prayer. And they're going to win this fight and they're going to win this war too, this 500 year war on their people. They may not win it against a people, mm-hmm. but they're going to win their sovereignty on some level. Won't look like any of us think it might look like, but you know what I'm saying? Yep. Like, yeah. They're actually doing it mm-hmm. for 500 years continuously working to this end. And it's not based on weapons. It's right. based mm-hmm. on this continued holding and firming this space really of the heart. Mm-hmm. I, so I don't know if I answered your question exactly, but yeah, I mean, that's, that's my inspiration. And that's the place where I most have seen that actually put into practice and affected in the field. It's it's awesome. I mean, my question is is really just meant to be kind of a, a catalyst for us to have a deeper understanding of what it is that you're speaking to. So that story is fantastic. I mean, part of me is curious about, you know, as you're talking about taking this work, right, and finding ways to bring it into these different circumstances, like this is an awesome example of an incredibly powerful moment. And so I wonder too, like when you were saying, you know, we kind of work where we are, like, do you have ceremonial methodology? Do you have structures that you use? Do you totally go with sort of, you know, your own internal connection and intuition? Like sort of, I'm, I'm curious to hear a little bit about how you're navigating with the work you're doing um, and bringing these attributes and this forgiveness work into whatever spaces you're bringing it into, just kind of to to get more of the flavor, right, of, mm-hmm. of how that feels, tastes, looks, smells, if that question makes more sense than the last one. Well, they all make sense. You know what I mean? And each of these questions are like a whole workshop. <laughs> sure. But that's Aaron, the point. That's what he does. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> No, it's a great question because that what we're trying to do is develop that methodology. Mm. The first stage is to liberate the field so that we can even do that work. Mm. Okay. You know? Now, like in in spiritual healing circles and whatnot, then pre-pandemic, we had workshops for right. this. Okay. You know? And I did that with folks Jewishly and also where people understood there's this fundamental Hebraic foundation that we're working with, but we're otherwise all of our language is going to be in a practical field. And I would have about like one third, not Jewish representation and about one third actively involved Jewishly and about one third Jewish ancestry, but otherwise not, you know, like working like most other folk who don't, you know, don't have that. Right. So it's really been vetted in the field in that way and like small group exercises and one-on-one and in my private healing practice and working with colleagues and in dialogues behind the scenes mm-hmm. in active movements, mm-hmm. you know, to help bring things back to the center or like calm things down and bring it back to the center. So, you know, it's like about 17 years mm. sort of actively trying things out in different ways. Now the 13 attributes themselves have a methodology. Mm. So that's kind of my challenge right now is how to translate that out of a Jewish specific context into the mainstream. But mostly we don't work with that in Jewish specific contexts either. You right. have to really get the kind of Kabbalistic circles, but it's such a simple methodology and it's just the path of the heart. Mm-hmm. It's so simple. It's just the path of the heart. 
But what is beautiful is it's like a litany. It's called 13 because there are these 13 attributes and it is a litany of these attributes and one unlocks the key to the other. So Mm. it's like, you know, the first of the group, not name them all because that would be a workshop, but like the first group of them is like all about one actually first making our prayer Mm -hmm. mentally. And, And again, one could call that your intention doesn't have to be in such overtly spiritual language, right? What is my intention? What am I asking for? What am I? And just by doing that, a person naturally gets more calm, right? Naturally, we can feel it right now. I can feel it right now, Mm -hmm. right? Just naturally, because these are actual living spiritual forces. So they will come and arrive, whether a person knows that that's what's happening or not. And so then, and then in my world, a person's guides will start to align with them and you know, whatever needs to happen is going to start to constellate to support that. And then the next group of the litany is like basically calling the forces of compassion mm-hmm. in different forms. One of which is, is a, a word called rahum, but it's in many, like in Islam, it would be rahamim, you know, in Jewish, it's like many things, you know, and it means mercy, but it's like it comes from this root that's like rechem, which means in Hebrew, like a womb, like a mm-hmm. right that a baby is nurtured in before it's born. And so this is the attribute of mercy of that or the attribute of forgiveness that relates to like a mother's womb, like the attribute of we could just picture that and feel that it has a particular vibe. A lot of us miss that, like a lot of the pain that people right express in the world is that they either didn't feel that they didn't get that growing up right or that was betrayed or they had it and now they don't have it right so it's right up at the beginning of the litany mm-hmm. for tra- especially traumatized people which is all of us to some degree right, right? if not in our own lives then epigenetically right mm-hmm ones that came before said somatically. So a lot of our work is somatic and these are all vibratory forces. So right up at the beginning are, it caused these forces that, that call and hold the space of compassion and that we can feel in our bodies, even if intellectually we don't understand these concepts, not really about that. Right. And then the next group starts working with things of forces like, um, you know, so then that opens the heart so it can then go a little deeper. Mm -hmm. So then the next group of forces is going to, call things like love, but not just love, love. It's like the love that comes and sort of like shows you the way. Mm. It's actually called the master of love, like Rav has been, like the great mm. love or the master of love. And so in like spiritualized terms, that would be like, well, Jewishly, Jews might not agree with this, but it's like the Christ light love or mm-hmm. like Krishna, right? Mm-hmm. Or like, you know, Oshala mm-hmm. or really Adonai is not actually particularly judging Hebraic force. It really roots this force of love mm. actually. And, um, and so it's like to call that. So we hook up to that kind of universal field, but it's also the love that comes and teaches us how to hold that for others. Mm-hmm. And therefore it like calls up our own wisdom and our own experience and honors this. So this is a living spiritual force that kind of like honors the space of each individual heart, which is, again, a lot of where the pain is expressed in the world. If people don't feel that that's honored and respected, it's like so fundamental, mm. right? And then comes truth. 
which, but not like what our opinions of truth are, like actual truth, which is non-judgmental, completely is neutral force, non without judgment, right? And and then that opens up the next field, which is to then guard all of that, because human beings are natural guardians mm. of love and of actual truth. Right. And so then we can think of and then there's a whole the series after that gets more deep. Right. Because then we're to working with like serious forces of forgiveness for things that people have actually done. Mm. Right. Deepening scales all the way to the worst that we could do. And then the last force is a cleansing force, which cleans it. Mm. So, so there's a litany, but they could, you know, they work in combination. Sure. Whatever is needed. And each one of these, in theory, Kabbalistically, and in these other traditions of encounter, then works with there's the petals of the heart from a perspective of energy medicine. Mm-hmm. Right? There's 12 petals of the heart, and the 13th is in the center. So there's 12 active forces that are working with here. The 13th is the prayer and the intention that we make at the beginning at the center. So each of these kind of aligns more with one of those petals of the heart. And I see it as like cogs in wheels mm-hmm. that like in gears, you know, that kind of like catch on each other mm-hmm. and turn like this. And so I don't know, whenever you engage the human heart and give it empowerment, right, then it tends to want to lead out front and good things come from this, right? So all this is super heady, but in a workshop, you can give people space to feel mm-hmm. a lot mm-hmm. and space for dialogue. So the question, and then in activist circles behind the scenes, you can do that, right? right? Mm-hmm. What I want to do is is open up the gates of permission to like laboratory this mm. methodology and find a way to get it into the mainstream language in a way that people can get right away. I call this B13. You're tearing around my Facebook. You'll see me post this all the time from here going forward. Mm. B13. Like, just be it. Like, embody this. Ah, I got it. Whatever way we can, you know? And and one of those is to have, like, total compassion for ourselves. So we're not perfect. I totally did not embody this earlier today in a moment. (laughs) You know what I mean? I'll apologize. So it's like we just want to keep our gig going forward. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like that. And then we'll see what happens. I think there's a huge... I'm going to say one thing and then I'll listen for a little bit. But I think that there's a huge call for this, especially in activist circles right now. Mm-hmm. You know, and Absolutely. it's like there's so much anger and it's so understandable where that comes from. Mm-hmm. And it needs to be allowed to be expressed. Right. But there's a difference between like uh, healthy anger and a call for vengeance. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. And that discernment gets mixed up most of the time, right? So it's like to help bring a platform that it doesn't have to be the only platform, but it works with everything. So it's like spiritual forces of forgiveness. They don't care what, who who gets more percentage of out front time. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I think one of the things as you're speaking to that, uh, you know, wanting to, both and the need for a space where people can express their anger, but not take it into a place of vengeance or violence. Right. And I, I think the experiential somatic component of what you're describing, like at least in my understanding and my experience is the, the way that that has the potential to shift. Right. Because I feel like Mm -hmm. so often when anger is 
not rooted in the body, right? Like the anger is as, as I express the anger, I'm not embodied. It's really easy for it to turn into something that is, is not about energy moving and transformation, but it's about continuing a cycle of generating more anger. Right. Correct. But when I can really drop in, which is often exquisitely painful at first, right? Especially if there's been all this trauma, you know, that is perhaps the source of this anger, then at least in my experience and observation, there's a way that that can really move in a way that seems to align the system with this kind of like, with growth rather than with, uh, you know, a sort of breakdown in a way that is not regenerative, right? But a breakdown mm -hmm. in a way that is only going to fertilize more of the same kind of trauma and poison that gave rise to why I'm feeling this trauma and anger in my own body. It's a little disjointed, mm -hmm. that explanation. But um, so I, I really am appreciating the way that you're both describing the conceptual framework, but really giving us energetically and in the description right of these different attributes an embodied sense of how this moves and breathes it's it's very beautiful it's so yeah. beautiful actually you know and i can't wait till i'm 20 more years i've been 20 years in and i can't wait for 20 more years so i see how it works out yeah you know? but it's so ancient and you know, it's like I have plenty of reasons in my own life to be an angry person. You know, most of our listeners don't know my background, but I have plenty of trauma mm -hmm. in my personal background solely. I mean, before we examine anything, and I have lots of blessing also. I'm like a, I'm a person of extremes, and I'm trying to learn now how to live in the middle. <laughs> so, but in my childhood, I mean, I was actually tortured as an intersex, openly, an intersex and openly, we didn't have the term transgender then, but openly transgender child in the 1970s in the deep South. Mm. And like actually tortured with the methodologies that people used or remembered from slavery. Mm. So like I tell people I could Google, we could Google those torture positions that slaves were put through to punish them. And that sometimes, you know, in more modern history, black people would be put through we're not allowed to do that anymore. So now we incarcerate people and do other kinds of things. Right. But so that was applied to me for several years of my early childhood and attempt to turn me not by my parents who weren't aware this was happening because people manipulate children into silence through interesting ways. Right. Mm -hmm. But at any rate, all that's done and gone, but in my body, right. I have plenty of reasons to be angry. Mm -hmm. Plenty. So I understand. I understand when people want to scream about the injustice that they have experienced in the world. You know, like, you know, parts of my body were actually cut off of me because I have intersex biology. And there was a idea then, and they still do it sometimes to, baby, to children now, right, that we're going to make your physical features look like only one gender or the other. They call these non-consensual surgeries. I don't want to go too much into that. People can look it up. So, I mean, I know about being, having embodied trauma, literally embodied trauma, right? And I have to heal through that. And have lots of people have helped me heal through this. And in my spiritual traditions, 
I have a few of them. Right? So, and I'm such blessed with incredible mentorship and incredible leadership, but everything therefore that I, and I, I don't know if I, I guess I teach, but everything that I bring forward and offer and help facilitate for others, it's because I have been through that and still healing through those things. I have direct experience. I know. So it's like if someone is expressing this kind of somatic pain, like you, Karen, you so beautifully described, and then I know in my own experience what it's like for me. Thankfully, I don't have as much of that anymore, right? But because I had to do a decade or more of super intense, take my whole life into that, right? But so fortunately now it's like a lot of it's lifting and I'm in such a different place, but I know what it's like to have that being expressed and have people hold, remember that attribute that I was talking about that's like a Rahim. the mercy of a mother's yeah. womb. Right? <clears throat> and I know what that feels like and what it feels like to have that pain be held with that spiritual force of compassion. Mm -hmm. And then it's like, oh, now we can let that go. Right. Right. Because it wants to be witnessed and expressed. Otherwise, it's going to be repeated mm -hmm. over and over until it's witnessed yeah. and held with respect and compassion. It's like fundamental for a human mm -hmm. in this way. Yeah individually and also like on a people-wide level, right? Like our, we have so much to heal race relations in this country, but in the world in general. And I'm a, have a white skin. I'm a white skin looking person, right? So I know that. Mm -hmm. And I know how it doesn't feel good to have so much projected onto me because of this. I'm like, I don't even know how I could live my life more in solidarity with the people that are yelling at me right now. Mm -hmm. I literally was born in an act of solidarity. You know what I'm saying? But also there's something to that. And Jewishly, it's hard because we're like, I wasn't even a white person when I was a kid. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. like, and my people are trying to like still heal. We have some, in my view, some things to answer to mm. in the state of Israel and in that particular situation with Palestinians, we have some serious things to answer to, but we are in a multi-thousand year process with that other people who are also part of our people, by the way, we grow out of the same people. So it needs to be dealt with as soon as possible, but it's actually a blip on an ancient historical map and it's going to be forced very soon. It's going to be hard for the Jewish people. We're going to have to do it, but it's coming. Mm. But otherwise we're still healing from 2000 years of colonization ourselves. <laughs> we're not like the, you know what I mean? So it's hard. And, but also there's truth. There also is truth in these issues of white privilege. And there also is truth. So it's like, that's where, when we're going to examine that spiritual force of truth and let that come, it's not always easy, right? Cause it's not, it's neutral force. It's like, it doesn't take sides. It's just like, here's all the multi-levels of truth, which, by the way, is another one of the attributes of forgiveness, where there are multiple simultaneously existing layers of truth right. that don't deny each other. Yeah. You know, so Jewishly, then we try to do this work. I have a serious opening up in a couple of weeks, a seven week series to examine Jewishly our relationships to white privilege, white supremacy mm -hmm. being 
being both colonized and a colonizer force, our own trauma Mm -hmm. that we're holding. Mm -hmm. So we can feel that, right? We're barely, barely recovered from the last genocide, which is one of a series, right? right? It's like so much. And so in order for us to actually step forward and be good allies with these other people, mostly black people, but also brown indigenous folk, right? In order to be good allies, we have to be able to be in a place of honesty with where we're at. But we can't do that if we don't feel that we're being held by this force of compassion and this force of respect, right? Yeah, and And I I think that the piece that you're speaking to about the multiplicity of truth, and I don't mean that everything is equally true or that everything is true, but that we have reached a level of complexity in this, you know, moment that we're in that is beyond the capacity of, of really any single mind to hold. And we're clinging in my observation to binary thinking in a way that was like outmoded easily a couple thousand years ago, right? It it didn't work then. And we're still in the main trying to have things be right or wrong, right? That somebody is either good or bad, you know? And it's like, it would be lovely if it were that simple, but that's not the world or the universe that we live in. And the sooner we can begin to have conversations where we can hold that there is, you know, nuance. And there are things that, what's that old saying that like, uh, the opposite of a small truth is a lie. The opposite of a great truth is another truth, right? Hmm. It's like, you know, it's, <laughs> I mean, I, I say it kind of every conversation we have, but like the, really the capacity to, to both and to hold things that seem to be, you know, there's the Fitzgerald quote that speaks to it better than anything I could say, where it's like the sign, you know, of a truly developed mind is the capacity to hold two opposing ideas at the same time and not go mad, right? It's grossly paraphrased, but nonetheless gets the point across, right? Mm -hmm. So this kind of embrace of of paradox and the reconciliation of things that appear to be opposites, but in fact are both great truths, I think is such an important part of this, you know, inquiry that you're speaking to. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm, I'm really moved to hear how it's in this ancient Hebraic tradition, right? Like it's always powerful for me when I get to hear about things that are from my ancestry that I've never heard before, right? <laughs> that were grossly lacking from my education as a, a young Jewish person. Because, because your ancestry was colonized. Totally. Right? Mm-hmm. Colonized. But I, I, you know, what I got was like, you know, I got the, the Jewish colonized expression of Judaism, right? Which was sort mm-hmm. of not that interesting to me, quite frankly. I mean, we're really an indigenous people. I've, now we're a mixed up people. Right. Mm. But that's pretty biblical, mm-hmm. right? Because all the all the ancient Hebrew folk who went out of Egypt, in theory, because right. we don't know what actually happened, right. but in theory, at least in scripture. And then it says in an era of Rav, which means a great multitude, like a great, it actually means a great mixed upness. Mm. Like a third of the ones that went out weren't even part of the Hebrew tribes. They were all these other folk that were like, Paul, we want to be liberated too. <laughs> and then everybody had to like figure it out right. on the other side. Right? Mm-hmm. So we're in a big, great mixed upness, but it's going to be liberating. You know, you hit on one of my favorite subjects, Tell me. Karen, which 
breaking the binary. Ah, uh, yeah. Um, yeah. Let's talk. Let's talk about breaking binary. <laughs> yeah. You know, because since I'm an intergender yeah. person, mm-hmm. these days we call that non-binary. But I don't want to be clear, since I'm a little bit public, that I consider myself a transgender person, and many non-binary people do. That's what the white stripe in the middle of the transgender flag is for. We got pink okay. and pink and blue on either end for those ends, mm-hmm. right? And then there's a white stripe in the middle for the intersex and non-binary mm-hmm. and other folk. And but breaking the binary, that's good for everybody. You know, and it doesn't mean that people can't be who they are. It just means that we're breaking this absolute mental constructs which really, in my view, but there are others who hold this view, is about control. Mm-hmm. It's, about, it's not a very indigenous concept. I mean, I can't speak for every single indigenous group on earth, but all the ones I've encountered are not particularly into absolute binary ways of thinking. Mm-hmm. Or if they are, it's a product of colonization. Right, right. You know, like this. And Jewishly, we actually have five genders, but most Jews don't know that. Ten, I get away with it because adjacent possible. Get, Tell us about that before you go on. Like, to, right, that's I, awesome. I come from these super old lineages and that are indigenous, and 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 I have this then lineage holder, so I have the empowerment, right, right, to know these things and to speak about these things. And I'm also an expert in aspects of Hebrew law, and I'm ordained as a judge. Hebraically, that I don't participate in that way very often anymore because I'm kind of a weirdo now. But you know, but at least I know what I'm talking about, and so it's hard for people to challenge me right. on these yeah. things. And so, it, I encourage everybody to know the law in whatever society or land or group or culture you come from, because then it empowers one to self-advocate, mm-hmm. right? And not to have others put an agenda forward that you might have all kinds of rights. There might be all kinds of permission for expression that you don't even know exist. And the ones that have an agenda aren't going to tell you. So you got to like, no, you got to know where you stand. So anyway, I have this. So here we have actually five genders in ancient Judaism, but even in Jewish law to this day. And those are your typical that we would think of male and female. But then we have, in today's terminology, what we would call transmasculine, which is a, a female type person, but that ex- also expresses masculine. That's not just butch. That's like someone who's like transmasculine, right? Mm-hmm. And then also transfeminine, right? A masculine person who's kind of non-binary, but swings more female. And then intergendered and non-binary mm-hmm. In the middle, so that's five. And then there's a whole separate legal classification for intersex people with intersex biology. Mm. Mm. So it's interesting. So in this way, I was actually the very first that we know of. There probably were others, but they just weren't out. But I'm the first that we know of openly intersex and openly intergendered rabbi in the history of the Jewish people. And I'm one of the first of the first three transgender rabbis. We all were ordained right about the same time, so none of us get that mm. <laughs> first distinction. Doesn't come with extra money or anything. <laughs> <laughs> so, but you know, people don't know it, but it actually it exists because we're an indigenous people mm. at our origins. Right. You know what I mean? Well, and you know, one of the things that uh, I think about 
and Lucas and I talk about a lot, and we talk about a lot on this podcast, is that you know so much, at least from my my observation and my inquiry into duality, I feel like is really rooted in um, these kind of subject object, subject, predicate kinds of linguistic constructs, right? Um, that we see in the Indo-European language family. Um, and that, you know, as folks who are really deeply invested in the study and practice of classical Chinese medicine, it's simply not what the medicine or the philosophy um, of classical China is speaking about, right? Everything is entirely processual. And so one of the things I like to say when people first come and see me is that when they're like trying to get a sense for either what Chinese medicine is at all or why what I do might be different than the TCM practitioner or the other practitioner they saw that was another acupuncturist. But I usually am like, so, you know, probably this is going to be a little bit different. You know, I, I like to tell people that, um, so, you know, everything's about process. <clears throat> there are no things in Chinese medicine. And anytime we identify something as a thing, we've stepped out of the Chinese medicine mind mm. and orientation to reality, and we've entered into something else, right? So what makes that hard, right, for most of us is that even though these are things I've been contemplating and working in context in which my mind has been opened in a lot of ways, and my consciousness has been opened in a lot of ways to that being uh, a more useful model of reality, even though it's still a model. The fact of the matter is I was born speaking English, right? And having learned other languages doesn't, I mean, it helps, right? But still, I was born speaking English. And so my my programming, right, on some very deep level still likes to see things, right? It sees things when in fact, of course, things are entirely this kind of fabrication, right? Where there certainly, you know, the table is the table on a certain level, but where does the table stop? Like classical sort of, you know, metaphysical inquiry, like where does my body stop? Where does the tree stop? Right? Like, okay. So when you start to break it down, of course, anybody that's played these games knows that like those boundaries, they just don't even exist. Like we, we create them. They're useful. If I have to move the furniture, it's nice to know where the furniture stops so I can pick it up. But in point of fact, when we're talking about, you know, more complex dynamics, when we're talking about systems, when we're talking about, you know, sort of the fractal nature of organismic intelligence, these kinds of distinctions, they don't do us a service. They do us a great disservice. And so, you know, I don't know enough about uh, I mean, I know, you know, in certain Kabbalistic circles, folks talk about God being a being a verb, right? So I have some understanding that there is also this within Kabbalistic circles. But I'm curious how that lands with you and what your what th thoughts or feelings that might bring up for you as I speak to that kind of processual orientation. Well, I just say yes. <laughs> cool. But look, okay, look, like I'm not as I'm I was gonna say I'm not as fluent in Chinese medicine. I'm not fluent at all in Chinese medicine, <laughs> but I will have dabbled a little bit, right? And so and because the Chinese language is one of those original languages of the last epoch of humanity in this last six thousand years. Right, if Chinese, Hebrew, 
the uh, Sanskrit, right? Korean, Farsi. There's only like seven or eight of them. Some of the native languages, original languages that are that are still in existence and have a a non broken continuity. Mm-hmm. Not, not that there aren't other languages on earth, but that we have an unbroken continuity, even through colonization. Maybe we have changed and evolved and been influenced, mm. but right. We have this. So it's like this ancient, really ancient window. It's like a window into the ancient past of these origins of humanity. And so something that the Chinese language shares, but probably differently, but shares with the Hebrew language is that our, our symbols that we use to write with our pictographs. Mm-hmm. Now, the Hebrew language has evolved, so we have ancient Hebrew, which I happen to be an expert in, <laughs> but it just so happens. And then we have really, we also have really ancient Hebrew, like the Hebrew we use now is already ancient, right. 2,500 years. But then we have really ancient Hebrew and even more ancient Hebrew. It has many forms. And then some of that went to Greece, right, to the Greeks, and the Greeks picked it up and became the basis for the Greek language, which became the base or the, or for their alphabet. Mm-hmm. Right? The Aleph bait, which are Hebrew right. became the alphabet. alphabet. Yeah. And um, then that evolved into Latin languages and things like that. And then it came back with the Greeks to Syria, Assyria, Greek Assyria, mm-hmm. and got re-indigenized. <laughs> oh. and reintroduced into the Hebrew language. And when the Jewish exiles returned I mean, it was really the the like the high classes of the Hebrew people, like the scribes mm-hmm. and the priests and the intellectuals and the ones with money and stuff that got taken off to Persia at the fall of the first temple. When they returned, like less than a hundred years later, then because they knew they had to survive within all these empires, what they did was they decided to go with the less indigenous form of Hebrew. Mm. They would fit in uh-huh. and be less threat to the empires around them. Mm. And the indigenous forms of Hebrew were kept in Kabbalistic permutations, but not used commonly like this. So it's harder to see the pictographs in the new old versions of the right. Hebrew, right? The new ancient mm-hmm. versions that we're using, but actually they are pictographs. And so it's like in you know, in the Chinese language, the pictograph, suddenly nothing is binary in that situation because it's like every, each, each symbol, right, represents a whole group of words. Mm-hmm. And those words on the surface might not seem like they relate to each other at all. But actually, every word, right, relates to every word that is in the group that relates to that mm-hmm. pictograph mm-hmm. like this which is itself in Hebrew, those pictographs are a combination of like ancient understandings of our place in the galaxy. So the ancient ones understood we were in a galaxy. I don't, I can't say why that is. I have my opinions, right? I think humanity is more, civilized humanity is more than 6,000 years old is my personal opinion. But at any rate, they understood that there was this idea of a galaxy and that we we're in the cosmos mm-hmm. and that we are galactic beings. They had other ways to say mm-hmm. that, but right. And that also we are human beings. So each of those pictographs also has aspects of the archetypes of being a human being. And then they also have animal totemic 
forces. Mm-hmm. So like my one of my favorite ones is the second letter of the Aleph bait of the which is the bait in English that would be a B. And in the old forms, it looks kind of like a bear that's like lounging mm-hmm. against me and sort of like lounged at like, you know, or like if a human was like on a lounge chair by a pool, you know, <laughs> you're not quite lying down, but you're a little bit leaning up. Totally. Right? It's like this. And so, and there's another form that's like a bat. Mm. It's so cool. It's like a bat wings. Like we're on video, but the people won't be able to see that. So I can't <laughs> Well, if you've got an image, we can always put it in the show notes. That's true. You know, and so all of the, and then those are related to the certain archetypes in humanity that we want to call out. And then our place in the cosmos Mm -hmm. and these universal spiritual forces. And then every single word that has that letter in it has that attribute in it. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And so suddenly everything's very circular. Totally. In this, this is why Hebrew scriptures do not translate into Latin and mm. and Greek and English. And I mean, you can get the gist of it. But you mm-hmm. get, it's like you lose all of those layers. And I would have to think that that's true of trying to translate Chinese, also certainly any indigenous language. And that's why when you're a colonizing force. The first thing you want to do is take away the system of writing mm-hmm. of that people and take away the language. Right. right. Yeah. What always kind of blows my mind is um, like whenever Taryn and I are both in this class with um, Dr. Ed Neal and we're picking apart parts of this really old book. It always blows my mind when, when we use a pictographic language and we go to a pictographic language dictionary to describe the definition of another pictograph. Do you know what I mean? (laughs) So it's like this, this picture means these three pictures, which all also have their own, you know, multiple connotations. It's like, if I sit and think about it, it kind of blows my mind. And I'm like, how do I move forward from there? Like in English, that's hard. Like Taryn Mm -hmm. was explaining so astutely. It's hard because it gets in us. You know, we embody the languages that we are, are our first languages, right? That's why Jewishly we try to get Hebrew into our kids as early as possible, at least the forms of the letters, even if they're not, right? So it's, it gets embodied. But so in English speakers and other binary language speakers, it's hard. To, we can get it intellectually, but it's hard because it's not embodied. But also like what better way? Well, there are lots of ways, but... What a great way to work with our previous part of our conversation to work with somatically held mm-hmm. and embodied exactly. trauma than when your language itself works vibrationally in your body. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So indigenous folk, I got no problem whatsoever understanding what their all these implications of their language because it's embodied and they grew up with it embodied. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. And Jewishly, we have a real problem with this because most of our people right now, unless they're in the, in Israel, but then they're not working with ancient Hebrew and with the indigenous roots. So it's kind of like a colonized Hebrew, modern Hebrew, actually. And it's like Jewishly, like people have to be taught their own tradition. And they typically do that as they're approaching or are already at the age of adulthood. Right. So it has to come in through the head. Mm-hmm. And it's not, and then, and then we find ways for people to feel that in their hearts. It's like this for all spirituality though, right? Yeah. 
we're disembodied from our natural spiritual root, no matter what people we are from and as a society. And so it's like, we're introducing things through the head intellectually. And we try to make these venues so people can feel it in their hearts. But what we can't do is replace the embodiment. Right. Mm -hmm. Or we can, but it takes a long time. You know, that's why it's, all the spiritual discipline takes a long time. Fair. Amisha, as you're speaking, it's really interesting, right? Because I'm remembering um, a lot of things I haven't thought about in a long time. About So I grew up in a pretty religious household. We were part of a traditional synagogue. And, you know, I mean, I was out of school for every, you know, first and last two days of Pesach, Sukkot, like, you know, not the not the minor minor holidays, but like, much more than most Jewish kids. Like I, I went to Hebrew school three days a week. I was doing that from the time I was five. Right. And we were in synagogue, like, you know, we would have Shabbos dinner. We were in synagogue all day, Saturday, we'd go home for a while. We'd come back for Shabbos Shulis and Hamdallah. And so I'm like remembering being a kid and being in the vibrational field right before I had you know, I mean, I had a low threshold for standing in one place, but you know, like when I would be in the, the, within the sanctuary, you know, like post Amida or like post Torah reading, when everybody's voice was lifted, the feeling of Mm. being in that vibration, right. And I'm kind of like tracking that experience and thinking about other kinds of spiritual experiences in my life and thinking about what we were just talking about, about process orientation and you know on the one hand certainly i stand by what i said because english is my first language but i'm thinking as you were speaking to exposing kids to hebrew at an early age i could have been younger but i was pretty young all things considered and definitely very exposed and it's just like ringing a little bit of a bell in my own orientation to my own understanding of my own experience that's never been wrong um, in an interesting way where I'm like, oh, well, maybe that's why it's actually not as tough for me as it is for some of my friends and colleagues to grok that. You know, I also have the Mm -hmm. benefit of being somebody who's pretty somatically oriented. I have a strong movement practice, right, in lots of different ways and have for a long time. The work that I do in my clinical work, right? I do a ton of manual stuff. I do a lot of Twena, cranial osteopathic techniques. So I, you know, all of it is very much this kind of embodied relationship to that. So in some respects, the first language that I oriented to was not uh, what we commonly think of as a language, but it was in fact a somatic language, Mm. right? Which I think inherently, if that's the way we're orienting, then even if we try to cognize, put a cognitive overlay that says no things are things, right? It's things in space. Some deeper part of us knows that that's bullshit because that's not the way we actually experience not things. Mm -hmm. We experience them as processes, right? So I don't know. That's a diversion that in some respects is largely about me, but really I I hope it's (laughs) useful for somebody because it's, you know, I'm, I'm learning something in this moment from listening to what you're describing. That's really quite illuminative in my own understanding. I think it's a hugely important observation, mm-hmm. actually, and totally right on. I mean, there's a reason why there's so many Jews and so many spiritual traditions that aren't Jewish. Right. Yep. And there was a time in this country, now a generation, now we're another generation forward. And so 
so many other people have been called forward, but partly because of all the work that Jews did to open the path. Right. Mm-hmm. So that Buddhism, mm-hmm. Hinduism, right. yoga, yeah. like on and on. Even the first ayahuasca came to this country through Jews, sure. you know, but they were operating Jewishly. They just right. happened to be Jewish. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So mm-hmm. it's like this list goes on and on and on. Yeah. Right? And then they open the work and now a whole bunch of other hearts have come right. and Jews aren't necessarily even the majority in those circles. But there's a reason for that because it, naturally spiritual people opened up and embodied when they're kids. Mm. And then as they got older, typically, now they weren't finding the space in Jewish venues to match what that embodiment, the kind of the promise of this embodiment mm. that was planted. So mm. you're going to find it in other paths, which is fine yeah. for me. It's true in Chinese you know medicine saying? too, just to bring another circle of work. <laughs> yeah. Lots of, lots of that's true. the first wave. And part of this is like about you know, I'm a rabbi type person, so that I have that perspective, that experience. But also, it's really about indigenosity. Mm-hmm. Some people call that indigeneity, but I'm not actually that academically oriented, so I call it indigenosity. <laughs> it's got a nice ring to it, though. Yeah. Because there's, I mean, there certainly is no universal indigenous form, and I would never try to belittle any people and lump them into one thing. But there are some common themes that we find in like an indigenous ways of thinking, indigenous ways of being. And I know that the place where I, places where I have felt the most empowered to be awesomely Jewish are when I'm with indigenous folk, mm-hmm. more so often than in Jewish circles. Mm-hmm. And, the re- and I think the reason that I don't know why I wound up in the inner circle of the Lakota spiritual leadership at Standing Rock, they found me, right. like I said in the story. But once, but I know why I stayed and was able to stay in those circles, mm-hmm. because then we drop into a common indigenous way of being that transcends my culture, your culture, this culture. And in that moment, of course, was my place to respect their culture out front. But we just communicate. There's a whole indigenous way of communicating and a whole indigenous way of thinking and a whole circular way of thinking and a way of embodying our how we're feeling about stuff and a way of like mutual respect. And other non-indigenous peoples know how to also be mutually respectful, but it's just different, right, how that's expressed. And so I think that you were speaking to this a lot, Taryn, you know. Do you, thank you for that. Do you know Tyson Young Caporta's work at all? A book called Sand Talk or any of his talks? No. He's a super interesting cat. He's a um, a complexity thinker and sort of philosopher, but he's uh, an aboriginal. And, um, and I do not remember much to my chagrin at this moment, his clan affiliation. Um, but he's a super, super brilliant, funny, like fascinating guy. But one of the things that he likes to say is that being indigenous is baseline human and that that's what it means to be a person on earth. And if everybody has it, but most of us have gotten away from it, including a lot of people in that are ostensibly in indigenous cultures, right? It's not, you know, but he also tells this great story about being somewhere in Scandinavia with these two like blonde, white, like old grannies who, you know, he kind of like didn't know what to do with them at first. And then they start talking to him and he was like, you know, it was crazy because these women were blacker than I was, meaning like in, within the context of the story, like that they were more indigenous yeah, yeah. than he was. Right. He was like, I felt so white because they were like totally <laughs> roasting me like my aunties would, you know, and it's this 
really, really, really interesting way that he speaks to the incredibly like deep and complex manifold way of indigenous consciousness uh, as a means of engaging and expressing right within the world. Uh, I, I will not try to recapitulate Tyson's work in this moment, but you'd probably get a real kick out of it. It's he's super yeah, fun. It's super fun. He reads the book on the audiobook is like him reading it. Um, so good stuff. It's amazing. Yeah. One of the, you know, I, th- I think just my one opinion that one of the great potentials for healing and for decolonization, right? Anyone wants to know what that is, you can go look it up, right? But one of the great potentials for healing and decolonization are for people with white European ancestry to reclaim their indigenosity. Because most of those folk are not that many generations removed, actually, from when their peoples themselves were colonized. And the Celtic peoples especially, you know, like the first peoples that I call these the wars on indigenosity, right, that were enacted first by Rome mm-hmm. and then the Roman Catholic Church. I'm not referencing today's Catholic Church, right? It's a different manifestation and it has its own issues, but it's just, I'm not dissing anybody in the current reality map. But in the previous reality map, Rome and then the Roman Catholic Church inherited that process and continued it, right? The two peoples that were first I mean, there were a bunch of peoples, but the really were the Jews and the Celts. Because, I mean, there were a t- bunch of peoples this war on indigenosity was enacted at the beginning. But these were the two main peoples that, that survived enough and who refused to assimilate. Mm-hmm. Right? The Jews and the Celts. This is a 2,000-year-old war. Still unfolding but i think it's on the back end heading into a healing process Mm -hmm. which is kind of the most difficult part in some ways right Right. so it's like serious and irish folk and other celtic folk also and i don't want to leave out all the other celtic folk who are in this place but i i know quite a lot of irish folk and they're still trying to get up out of colonization Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know like i was referencing earlier in this talk how how the native folk in this country in the United States had their practice of their religions and of their spiritual traditions was outlawed until the mid 1970s. Right. But it was against the law until later than that for people to speak Irish in Northern Ireland. Mm -hmm. Cause you don't want indigenous people. If you're a colonizing force to speak their indigenous language. So there's so much healing that can come from that, right? And so much of peoples in this country of uh, white-skinned resistance, right, Mm -hmm. to that call for racial healing and racial justice and these really deep examinations we need to be made is because their peoples have not yet been given a chance to be witnessed. Right. Mm. And we're not through the epigenetic trauma layers yet. That goes to at least four generations, and in some cases, seven. Mm-hmm. We haven't even we haven't cleared those layers yet. So it's not. And again, we were talking about many truths being held. It's not to say that because of this, it's okay that this other thing happens. Right. 
Mm-hmm. And it's not to, not to say that, you know, all of our non-white skinned people don't have a real things to put on the table and be like, this actually cannot go any further. Right. Mm-hmm. But also <laughs> if what we really want is, or I say, and also, right. If what we really want is actual healing, then the space needs to be for everybody. You know what I mean? Everybody yeah. has to have access to that. And I think that healing these wounds against our respective indigenosities is like one of the biggest, hugest pieces of the equation. A- Amen to that. And the thing that, you know, I want to like speak into this dialogue right now, right, is the earth herself and like our connection. Connection is not even the right word. The fact that we are nature, right? And that we are so estranged from that. And so like how, you know, like in speaking to the indigenosity, right? right? Right. Yeah, exactly. That's kind of where I'm going with this too, is it's like, if I don't connect back to the cycles of the seasons and like to become to re-become indigenous to place, right? Or maybe for many of us to become indigenous to place for the first time, at least in this lifetime, right? Like, I don't know how the healing happens if we don't also come into relationship with this, right? And so the thing that I feel like is available to all of us, like literally right now, right, is like start to tune in to like, where are you? What are the plants doing? Like, what does it smell like? You know, like even if you're in a city where there are barely any plants, like there's still in almost everywhere, at least in this country, there's stuff growing up from the cracks in the sidewalk and it changes with the seasons, right? Like start to tune into how those changes are happening because when we start to tune into those cycles and there's something I feel like, at least in my own experience and and what I talk to with the people that I work with, we start to harmonize in even the smallest way with those rhythms, it starts to open something up where we start to feel that we are part of something, right? And which I think is clearly true, right? We are all on, not to whitewash or Pollyanna any of this, right? But we are all children of the same mother. It doesn't matter what color our skin is on that level. Like, yes, we need to, and speaking of the truths that are, you know, all of them existing at the same time, not to suggest, as we've been speaking to, that these other kinds of traumas and concerns, the process of decolonization, like, for sure, all of these things, and for us to open up to holding this other dimension of it, too, which is like, okay, well, we really, we either get through it together or we don't get through it at all, right? We're either all recognizing that we are children of the same mother or like, you know, we're not going to be around to have this kind of conversation or any other kind of conversation for that much longer. Mom's going to kick us out. (laughs) Well, I don't even think mom, it's not that mom's kicking us out. Mom's going to keep being mom, but you know, we're going to end up kicking ourselves out. We're just, yeah, we just grow, won't mom will grow through a need for us to be here. But you know, like what, you know, like in that, spiritual force of forgiveness that I articulated way back earlier in this conversation. That's like coming from uh, the force that it feels vibrationally, like it comes from a mother's womb, mm-hmm. not even just a mother's forgiveness is like that in that visceral, yeah. like it's literally like it's, you can just feel it in your whole everything. It's like so primal. Yeah. All of us at every single one of us, human beings was at some point in a womb. Right whatever our relationship to that was. So we all talk about what somatically we have in us. That's it. 
all have that vibrational force in us, right? Mm -hmm. And so when we call that force to hold compassion for, all right, the being for all of this other stuff, where do we think that that force is being emanated from? Mm -hmm. You know, that is Gaia and Gaia consciousness. That's my view. That's also a Kabbalistic Mm -hmm. view. You know, that is what is emanating that. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, me personally, when I, no matter what it is that I think that I'm upset about or who it is I think I'm upset at or what in my past I think of, because I can go to those places. I was there earlier today, right? It's like if I put my feet on the ground and sometimes the city it's harder, but you're saying you have to look for it a little more, but I live in a really beautiful place on earth with lots of mountains and forests and I'm really blessed in this way. And so I know like I just got to put my feet on the ground and feel the earth. And, and even better if I'm in, once I'm in the middle of a forest, as long as it's just me right. and I don't have other human beings to then with, right. I actually don't think I can be mad at anybody when I'm just me in the middle of the forest. It's not even just that it's like just irrelevant. Yeah. Right. It's not that nothing in the world is relevant. It's just that my need to be angry and vengeant and projecting my whole everything because it's just being, it's just, you know, you just want to harmonize in the middle of the forest. (laughs) At this point, our teacher Ed would say, well, that's because, you know, the fundamental pattern of the universe is breath motion and the forest is breathing you. (laughs) Right. right. Quite literally. (laughs) I I, I look at it as like, because I grew up uh, with a forest right behind my house. And I always felt like they were like these, you know, giant old wise things. And I would, I always get the feeling like they're just kind of standing there, just watching me, just breathing and just being like, oh, silly human. <laughs> you know? Now science is proving that, right? Because we always right? have to wait modern humans for science to prove spirituality <laughs> right. and, and to prove what indigenous folk have known all along. And so now science is like, guess what? Trees can talk. <laughs> mm hmm. Mm-hmm. It's all connected. Then guess right. what? We're all connected. Right. <laughs> and guess what? Like the the moss and the lichen are sending warning systems, in and the, these things mm-hmm. are doing. And they're all connected. They're all talking right. to each other. Right. For centuries and thousands of years. Like wow. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what I say when I read those headlines. Wow. <laughs> they have so much compassion for us. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's little blips in their historical horizon. Yeah. So, Amishay, do you have any, we're kind of like moving into close to the 90 minute mark, which is usually where we try to wind things down. Do you have thoughts, um, anything you want to make sure that you have an opportunity to express, places you want to direct folks if they're interested in connecting to your work or with you, which can also be just show notes, website style, but like, you know, anything that's, that's in the landing, you know, in the closing of this particular circle. I tend to like to land on a place of gratitude, Mm. you know, and because I think that's genuine. That's for real. You know, like that. I know that I have I have been in some places in this lifetime, you know, but really I have also, you know, just really been so blessed 
that I have said earlier. And I don't mean that in like a, whoo, I'm so blessed. I mean, like, actually, you know, and life can be hard, can be. Mm-hmm. And yet here still am. I'm going to get to go outside and feel my forest. Mm-hmm. Right? And I'm super grateful for this conversation has grown me this conversation. And actually through this conversation, I have seen ways to start articulating the work that I'm trying to develop actually, because you got to talk to people and hear what it draws up out of them and how they reflect and what in their experience does or doesn't jive with that. You know, so I'm super have lots of gratitude for all that. And for both of you taught me a lot in this conversation. Well, part of the reason why I've been so silent is because I'm just <laughs> processing all this amazingness. <laughs> I've just sort of, it's it's been real it's been a real treat. It's been really amazing. I'm gonna chew on this for a while. Thank you. You're welcome. Yeah, and I my just heartfelt gratitude and appreciation. It's been such a total pleasure to have this conversation with both of you and I I am feeling particularly blessed in this moment to have had the opportunity to to sit with the two of you um, and listen to and speak with both of you. It's really been a joy and a pleasure. And it's interesting too, Amashe, because even though, you know, as you pointed out at the beginning, and I can't remember if we were recording already or not, we have only met in person once a long time ago, but somehow that that meeting was such that I have continued to feel connected to you, even though we have not really communicated with a lot of frequency over the years. But um, this conversation definitely like amplifies as well as clarifies that that sense was something that was true, right? And the resonance that I was feeling was something that I, I feel even more deeply now. And I'm super grateful for that. And I I'm already looking forward to the next, the next opportunity and to hear how all of this unfolds right? I'm like, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm totally captivated. It's just a, I'm really, really, really curious to be, to have the opportunity to hear the stories about the things that you're learning about this process that you're in, because I feel like I'm going to learn a ton more. And I've also learned a lot in this conversation. So thank you for that. You're so welcome. It's so mutual. And also Lucas, I mm-hmm. super enjoy you. Same <laughs> Well, we've got to learn to be human beings together. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. We're all trying to get to the same place, actually. Yep. Yep. Cool. Cool. Well, till next time, because we have to do this again. Yeah. And you'll let us know how you're, you're, when you're launching your podcast, right? When's that happening? Uh, (laughs) At some point. No, I think what I'm going to do is I call them prepisodes. Okay. I think I'm going to do some nice. prepisodes for this seven week series that I'm starting in like two weeks. Great. Okay. Right. But I, and I, so I'll launch it and I'll put them out there and I'll, it'll have the moniker of what the real podcast is going to be, but I'm going to frame them as prepisodes because I believe that there's a laboratory space that's legit mm-hmm. and I've never been afraid to just put it out public. All right. We're in the laboratory, yeah. you know what I mean? And then, but as professional as we can do it, you yeah. know, it's a cop out, but. So I think prepisodes starting in the next couple of weeks and then this with a goal this summer to actually understanding how to get the technology and everything honed in in a good way. Nice. Okay. We'll have to tr- share trade secrets then because we're in the same process. 
That's so yeah, awesome. if there's anything that we can do to help support you in that, I mean, I don't know that we're the best resource, but we're a resource that's very amenable to doing what we can to help you. So you've got that going for you. <laughs> awesome. Cool. Well, blessings to you. Wishing you well, and we'll we'll connect again soon. Awesome. So much blessing and love. Take Bye. care. Have a great night. <laughs>